Hi, I'm Skip Nipper. Welcome to my podcast where I tell you about Nashville's great baseball history and traditions. Shot to write a one-hop liner. Certainly about its past, especially about Tom Wilson Park, Herschel Greer Stadium, Sulphur Dale, but also a little bit about its present and future, too. Yes, he can. A mix the waist-high catch. And I introduce you to players, coaches, and other fans and their love for everything baseball. A high fly ball down the right field corner going way back. Hits a leadoff home run. Today we're still talking about Pete Rose, and I think the reason that his name comes up in conversation is because he was banned from baseball because he gambled and supposedly bet on his own team. When he was manager, and I'm sure player before, uh, he was banned for life. I don't think Pete Rose is eligible for the Hall of Fame. I'm not sure he ever will be. Maybe after he's passed on, he'll never know. And I'm not sure he needs it. He makes plenty of money, as I understand it, by uh, attending card shows and personal speaking engagements throughout the country, but primarily in Las Vegas. And I think he goes to Cooperstown. There's no reason why he can't be in the city of Cooperstown. And to be quite frank with you, his name is all over the Hall of Fame anyway. He's just not a member of the Baseball Hall of Fame. So it raises an interesting question. When baseball has tied in so closely to gambling, Now, I know the story that all the baseball locker rooms say you cannot gamble, don't gamble in baseball. There's criteria for that. I don't know what that is exactly other than I've heard and been told that that is in the locker rooms of every major league, and I guess minor league ballpark. And we know that there has been, on occasion, a player who's been suspended for gambling, particularly in the NFL, but baseball still has that edict that you cannot gamble on the game. Now, I want to take you back to the first part of the 20th century because there is a connection to Nashville with a commissioner dealing with gambling. So I'm going to take you back a little a little ways. On a day in which Nashville would take on the Seagulls in Mobile in the second game of this series, the local newspapers were more agog about the trade of first baseman Gene Paulette to the St. Louis Browns. It was August the 20th, 1915, and the Vols were seeking help as the season drew to a close, needing help to close the seven-game gap the New Orleans Pelicans had over them. Now, Paulette would not join the Browns until their spring training camp in 1916, as Nashville sorely needed his 297 batting average to keep the Vols in the race for the pennant. But the deal with the Browns was a four-player-for-one deal, with two names announced immediately by St. Louis, and two would be announced at a later date. But two of the players named, Dick Kaufman of the Atlanta Crackers, who would take over Paulette's position at first base, and Gus Williams of Toronto, who would lead the Southern Association in doubles with 33 the next season in 1916, would play integral parts in Nashville's regular season championship that year, the fourth pennant for Nashville in the 20 years of the Southern Association. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Paulette. He had played in 10 games with the New York Giants in 1911. 
That was the year the Giants played the Philadelphia Athletics, losing the series four games to two. And surprisingly, even though Paulette did not play in any of the six games, he earned a player's share of World Series proceeds totaling $609.10, a tidy sum back in those days. Now, in 1912 and 1913, interestingly enough, he was with the Mobile Ball Club in the Southern Association. But then going back to 1915, when the trade was announced, it was his second season with Nashville, having hit for a 260 average in 1914. But his play at first base continued to improve, as did his batting average, making him a valuable commodity that Branch Rickey wanted. Paulette was considered the best first baseman in the Southern Association, and almost everybody had him pegged on their mythical all-star team. Almost immediately, there was a report there might be a hiccup in the plan. Williams had what was called a fat contract that Nashville could not handle, and a future Hall of Fame member and famous baseball man on so many levels, you may have heard me mention him just a minute ago, Branch Rickey, would be stepping in to resolve the issue. Ricky was the St. Louis Browns manager, except for Sundays when Jimmy Austin, one of his infielders, would step in. Ricky had made a promise to his mother that he would never play baseball on Sunday, that he would honor the Sabbath. But in this instance, Ricky made it known that this deal would happen, and he was looking forward to finalizing everything in Atlanta the following week when the Vols would be visiting the Crackers, and he would sign Paulette to a contract. Paulette signed the deal with the Browns on August the 28th, and Ricky completed the deal. He and Brown's owner, Robert Colonel Hedges, were satisfied that it was a great deal for the Major League team. But Hedges would not be around to find out, as he sold the club to Phil Ball, who actually removed Ricky as the field manager and moved him into the front office. Well, the trade did not work out well for the Browns, at least for 1916. Paulette of all things, did not make the Major League Club, and he was sent to Memphis once again back in the Southern Association, where he batted 286. And he did return to St. Louis for five games at the end of the season, but he remained with the Browns for only two games in 1917 when he was playing behind a future Hall of Famer, George Sisler, father of Dick Sisler, who would become the manager of the Nashville Vols in late 1950s. Traded to the St. Louis Cardinals, he split the 1919 season with the Cardinals and then the Phillies before a final season in 1920 in Philadelphia, where he batted 288. But it was while he was with the Cardinals, he met some shady characters. And when he needed money in 1919, while he was in Philadelphia, Paulette cooperated with two gamblers and agreed to fix games in their favor. A letter obtained by Philly's owner, William Baker, written by Paulette, was incriminating evidence of his actions. In question was a game between the Cubs and the Phillies on August the 31st, 1920, and newly appointed commissioner Kennesaw Mountain Landis had questions. And when Paulette did not appear as ordered for follow-up questioning by Commissioner Landis, who was dealing with the Black Sox scandal, on March the 24th, 1921, Paulette became the first player permanently banned from the game by the baseball czar. Yes, Paulette was the first, not any of the Chicago White Sox. And as a point of reference, 
Landis did not ban the players from the Black Sox scandal until August the 3rd. Well, his baseball career ended, and Paulette found work with the railroad in Little Rock, Arkansas. Born in Centralia, Illinois in 1891, he died of a heart attack on February the 8th, 1966, at 74. But briefly, I want to go back to 1915. That day, on August 20th, the day the Paulette trade was announced, that day, in an effort to halt their losing streak, the Mobile batters drew lots to determine the lineup in that game against Nashville. And even though they had 12 hits against nine for the Vols, Mobile out to hit their opponent, but still lost by a score of seven to five. And that lottery lineup failed, as ultimately did the career of Gene Paulette. 